Shake the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And my name is Kyle Harris Gordon. Wow, instead of doing a cool impression of someone like, let's say, a Don Pardo or someone Correct. like that, sure. instead, you yes. just used your full name. Yes. Yes. Is that, really, what you're, is that what you're going by now? Are you getting a little more formal? Yeah, I want it to be like, yeah, like a serial killer. Like, they always use three names, you know? So I want to like, pr- like uh, I want to prep myself no matter what horrific things I do in the future people will be ready for it because I'm going to start using three names. Okay, Kyle Harris Gordon. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that. That's excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I want to be the Lee Harvey Oswald of, of the SpongeBob generation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still just Louis Perlman. And that way, when I become a serial killer, it'll take everyone by surprise. Well, yeah, which yeah, is a little pros more and fun. Cons, pros and cons, yeah, pros and cons. Definitely pros and cons. So he's been waiting in the wings during this entirely superfluous conversation. This is our first recurring guest to the podcast. We're so excited that he's joining us again. His name is Jason Boxer. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Hello. Middle name, Daniel. Middle name, Daniel. <laughs> yes, yes, Jason Daniel Boxer. Yeah, you'll never learn my middle name. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, that'll be a big. That'll be like when they. That'll be like when they finally reveal uh, Kramer's first name in Seinfeld. Like our fans will be waiting, waiting with Whoa. bated breath to learn Louis. Like they finally said the name. Yes, <laughs> I think I've actually said my middle name on this podcast before. But I, I. So you need to listen. I'm going to guess Herschel. Herschel. That's, yeah, that's what I'm putting out there. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much. Herschel <laughs> is my my uncle's Yiddish name, so it's not oh, too wow. far off. Hey, come on. You Don't know, play me. Awesome. I'm not. I'm not here to play games. All the right. Jews. I'm not here to play games. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it is. It is not Herschel. Although my <laughs> my dad's middle name is is Arnold, which is mm, that's great. nice. And that's great. You like that? And my yeah. What is my my uncle's middle name is Melvin. Ooh, that's <laughs> great. Incredible. You like that? Right. Yeah. Just an incredible so good. Yes, but, yes. But my uncle and my father are not on this podcast today. Jason, you are. And yes, you are currently running for your uh, a seat on your local school board in Manhattan Beach, California, which is a neighborhood yeah, in L.A., yeah, so, Manhattan Beach Unified School District. Yep. That's right. So so tell me a little bit about why you wanted to do that. I'm excited to talk about it. I've never done anything like this in my life. I have been a teacher, of course, taught with you guys, and I am a product of these schools that I'm running for the board for. And I've been back home in California since December and been doing like Previously, I'd been involved in a lot of partisan community organizing stuff, you know, like politically affiliated and everything. But the pandemic was a chance to do things that for the first time ever was just like, oh, anybody needs a mask around and anybody needs grocery drop offs. And certainly there are lots of folks who need it more than others. But I'd never really gotten to do something like that. But right around that time of the pandemic was really becoming a big issue. The school board announced they were laying off a bunch of teachers in Manhattan Beach. And so me and my other organizer buddies went to a school board meeting, one of the last ones, might have been the last in-person one, where they were announcing all this. And we just started talking about running someone. And I was the only one who kind of raised my hand. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll do it. (laughs) And 
now I'm taking this big foray into suburban nonpartisan politics. <laughs> but it is it is a great way to get started doing something important that you care about in a in, yeah. in a political in a political mode that's a little different than the work that you've been doing. I think so too. You also have been doing a lot of volunteer work and and also paid work as well for the Bernie campaign as well. Mm -hmm when mm -hmm. that was still more of a political viability in those halcyon days of February. <laughs> <laughs> the before times. Yeah, the before times, exactly. Would you say that you have political aspirations? I don't know. I've been scratching my head about that a little bit because it's a very different experience being the candidate yeah. versus being uh, just another organizer in the room. Mm -hmm. And even that was new for me, you know, like, I was a teacher and stuff and an artist before and continue to be those things. But being in the room where it's like, all right, like we're figuring out this together, like like it's all scrappy and we're we don't know what we're doing versus and this will be I'll have a series of meetings throughout the week and most of them will be like that. And then one meeting will be about the school board race. And instead of everyone kind of being in the huddle together, they can all look to me like, all right, like you're the boss, <laughs> like tell us what to do. So it's it's strange. I'm excited about doing it at this small level where it doesn't have to be a big, you know, hullabaloo. And I guess we'll take it from there. When's the election? November 3rd. Same oh, day wow. as the general. Same yeah. day as the election election. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know and the eyes, yeah, the eyes of the country are going to be on the presidential oh, yeah. race and the Manhattan Beach school board election. So like I, the I know. eye of Sauron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 this is Kick the Jukebox. This is your favorite musicology podcast where we deep dive into an album of the week. This week, it is Jason's pick, Vince Guaraldi's Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus from 1962. It's also a continuing look at the tastes and friendship of me, your host, and your co-host, Kyle Gordon, and our friends that we bring in to talk about music with us. If you like us, you can subscribe to us on a podcatcher of your choice, and you can rate and review us on iTunes, and we're on all social media of your choice. Jason. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the reasons why we have you on, I, I do want to bring this up, is <laughs> you made a, a, a very concerted effort to steer the shape of this podcast. So first of all, thank you for listening. And you've given us a lot of feedback over the last, I'd say, few months of episodes, which is lovely. Uh, some of your favorites, I know that the Death Cab for Cutie episode you really liked. If I didn't I, mean to be like like throwing commentary from afar. I was just being a fan. I am a really Well, fan. <laughs> thank you for being a fan, and we appreciate it. And fans who are listening to this podcast that have never reached out to us, you certainly can always reach out to us, and we're always happy to talk about music with you. And you contributed to our Patreon, our long yeah. defunct Patreon, that's sort of just in a state of, of, of neglect, in order to then write a Patreon-funded message to us to suggest <laughs> albums for us to do, which was adorable. And instead of us listening to your donation, we just decided to have you back on and let you talk about an album that you cared about. I was listening to an old episode and you mentioned the Patreon and I was like, I've listened to like five or six of these episodes recently. I'm going to donate to the Patreon. No, and thank you. I mean, the ah. Patreon is how we're... <laughs> ah. what, Kyle, why are you crying? Are you, are, you, are you emotional about it? Yes, it's just a very nice thing to do. 
It is a nice thing. And that's how I cry. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Maybe one day you'll be able to uh, show real emotion, Kyle. But for now... We're working on it. Yeah, yeah it's okay. Every to do boy it can way. dream. Every boy can dream. Yeah, every every robot boy of the SpongeBob generation. <laughs> 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 so, what have we been listening to over the last little while that's been getting us through these strange and transitional times? I have been listening to specifically. I want to give a shout out. I know it's it's unconventional on this podcast, but to give a shout out to another podcast that I just started listening to hosted by the journalist Patrick Radden Keefe from the New Yorker. He wrote this great book about like the troubles in Northern Ireland. And he has this podcast called wind of change, which is about how the song by the band Scorpions, the German band, they sang their most famous song in America is probably Rocky. Like a hurricane mm-hmm. they were like kind of a shitty whatever 80s hair metal band and there was this song called wind of change that was much i had never heard of it before this podcast which it was never really popular here but is one of the most popular songs ever everywhere else in the world and it was released in 1990 and apparently this song was written by the cia and and i am not conspiracy minded by nature, but this, I mean, this is a really serious, like Patrick Radenkeefe is a very mainstream, uh, well-respected journalist. And yeah, apparently like the song Wind of Change by the German band Scorpions was part of a CIA psyops mission after the fall of the Bern William Wall to help usher in former, like former Soviet client states and the Soviet Union to like embrace the future of like capitalism and western democracy so it's just insane and you got to listen to the song wind of change it's terrible but uh <laughs> it's like oh one of the biggest gosh. songs ever i wonder how many it's like a power other ballad how many other songs that are big hit songs were psyops over right. the course or, or of the last not 50 big years. hit songs this just might have been their most successful you know what i yeah, mean their most like, successful oh attempt at this gosh. for sure right Cause yeah. like they did. But imagine the, if they yeah. got like real classics, like yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. What if like some tune from Rumors or something? You know, like some heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, I mean, yeah, yeah, like I think um, just Bon Jovi himself. Oh he's just my. a psyops creation. Oh my! <laughs> he is a CIA creation. Oh, that is it's it's an interesting thought. Some of the artists that maybe have been created by the government. That, <laughs> that, you know, we can't even be, you know, there are probably some people that we really love. You Captain know. and Tennille. Sure, <laughs> sure. But, you know, you have to think, what are, what are the ones that really, maybe, maybe certain expressions that we felt were really big are actually ways to keep us, con- you know, under the thumb of, <laughs> of big government, complacent. Yeah. <laughs> You know, what, what about fo- those songwriters, the people who wrote them, wrote it for the CIA? Who are right. those folks? Exactly. Is the, is the podcast getting into that? I just started on this podcast. I haven't gotten there yet, but that'll be fun to Gosh. learn about. Well, that that's blew great. my and mind. <laughs> Jason, what have you been listening to lately? So last time I was on the podcast, I was trying to think of like, oh, I'm going to come up with a cool thing no one's heard of. And like, yeah, you, you know. You- also, that was in up. 2017. 
<laughs> wow, that was that's crazy. That's so that is now. crazy. Holy yeah, shit. that was a long time ago. That that was when we were still recording out of my living room. Yes, I remember we that. Huddled around my microphone. I was, was coming great. from a hugely dysfunctional meeting with my workplace at the time, where they had oh. told me that I had was taking too long to eat my breakfast, and that's when I decided <laughs> to quit. And if you listen to that that episode of the podcast, which is the uh, Pinkerton episode, the Weezer episode, of course, because Jason is a former editor, author of the Weezerpedia, <laughs> you know, highly, the highly distinguished Weezerpedia online. Yes, yes. But yes. if you listen to that podcast with that in mind, you know, I'm happy to reveal this three years later now. <laughs> I sound completely unhinged the whole time. I sound like I'm just like barely holding it together as my entire life is changing around me and it happened that day. And I was with literally two of my favorite people being like, I should really be enjoying myself. And instead I'm having like a fucking stress attack. So... Mm. Listen well, to that one podcast. of the all-time great episodes. So you 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 may have felt like you were falling apart, but you you kept it together. No, it's a you good did. episode. I agree. You gave a but yeah, performance. But listen mm -hmm. to me comparatively to the way I normally am on the podcast, and you'll hear a really frenetic Louis. So hmm. good <laughs> anyway, know. Jason, what yeah, do for you the true fans to? out there? Yeah, for the true <laughs> fans. Yeah. So today I was. I'm just bring, talking about what I'm actually listening to, which is I just can't. It's been such a source of comfort for me is getting really into Wilco's discography during the pandemic. And I wanted to mention the song uh, Muzzle of Bees from the record A Ghost is Born. Mm -hmm. It's There's this guitar swelling, big operatic build at the very end that is just, it's hard for me to use words to describe how beautiful I think it is. I, It's so powerful. That's wonderful. That's great. And but you've been a Wilco fan for a while, right? This isn't a new a newer thing for you, right? It's new in that like I'm listening to like much of their, you know, discography. Like I previously kind of just did Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is so awesome. Yeah. But I I found that I there's other records of theirs that I even like more than that one. And mm. I just think Tweety's such a incredible touchstone of American songwriting and he, you know, he gets probably a lot more credit than he deserves a lot of the time. And he's so NPR man all the time. NPR but, man. <laughs> yeah. That's a brand he's right amazing. there. I think he's really like, we're going to remember him forever, I hope. You know, Wilco is one of those bands that I have seen play nine times mm, when wow. I'm not a huge Wilco fan because wow. I've performed three times at the Solid Sound Festival that they curate out in Massachusetts. And Jason, this is something, you know, the three of us have in common is that we're all story pirates. And Jason, I'm sort of sad that you never got to do that tour with me because you would have loved me that. Me too. Getting I know. to see them that much. And gosh, I've really enjoyed seeing Wilco all those times, but also it's slightly lost on me because I'm not their biggest fan. I like Wilco, that's mm -hmm. fine. But mm -hmm. Wilco fans, I've talked to them about this, and oh. they're like, they're like, fuck you. And I'm like, I know, this is a real <laughs> privilege that I've been booked <laughs> as a performer three times to do this, this show. Do you ever meet him? I've never met Tweety. There's a really funny story about one of the story pirates, Chris Simpson. There was an artist tent that we were allowed to hang out in an artist area, which was really fun. And Chris had just gotten his haircut because there was a haircut booth there. And he Whoa. turned to one of the people... The guy was like, are you having fun? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, 
you know, what are you doing here? And Chris is like, oh, I'm performing with Story Pirates. And the guy was like, oh, great. Story Pirates is so great. And he was like, what are you doing here? And the guy was like, well, I'm the drummer from Wilco. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris One was like, well. One of the greatest well, drummers ever. Well, thank <laughs> you for putting this on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. What's that drummer's name? Do you remember his name, Jason? I might pronounce his last name wrong. Glenn Coach. Glenn Coach. Cool. Yeah. It might cool. be Coachy. I don't know how to say his last name. Well, you know, musicians are just people too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Muzzle of Bees is a real amazing tune. And Nels Klein obviously gets credit for being the guitar god that he is. Mm -hmm. But Tweety plays all the guitars on that record. And particularly this song, the guitar playing, I think is just, it's really incredible. That's great. Yeah, and, and comforting stuff right now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I think that revisiting mm -hmm. the music that you really love is important right now. I think that's part of what we're doing right now, Kyle, I would say, yeah, in terms of what sure. we're choosing. You know, right now, there's so much that's unstable. Having something to fall back on that is is musically sound that you know is going to be a ringer, that's that's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say that this album, this album is is that as well. Hmm. Uh, so let's start segueing into talking about it. But But before we do, I just want to say, just because it's something that I've been listening to this week and I just want to bring it up, because it is, for fans of the podcast, it's a real Louie and Kyle important thing to be thinking about. The Go-Go's released their long-awaited documentary this week. Uh, I watched it last night. It's quite good. It's the story of, of a band that does need to be told. They were the first all-female band to have a number one selling record in the history of music. That's really incredible. And they released a new song, their first new song since 2001. It's called Club Zero, and it's perfectly well-written. It's not the best thing I've ever heard from them, not the worst, but the production on it is overly fuzzy, I think in a way to make it modernized, and it's such a disappointment. And then I heard in the actual documentary, there's footage of them rehearsing the song and playing through the song, and it sounds like perfectly like a great little, very of the you know early era Go-Go song, and then something's happened in the production where they've decided to just make it sound really, really, really fuzzy and, and really, you know, uh, put a lot of compression on Belinda Carlisle's voice. It's not necessary. Mm. And just something that I think is a great thing just to mention on the podcast for anybody that's listening, when you're thinking about modernizing, mm. compressing and uh, crunching up, it doesn't necessarily make anything sound more modern. I think that the sound on this is actually really kind of early 2000s, late 90s. And I, I wish for a crisper production on it. So just 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 my Andy Rooney-esque rant for the week. <laughs> like, you know what really grinds my gears? When they put too much compression over the, the go-go's. But like, but it is something I, I just want to bring up because they are a band that's so near and dear to our hearts. But we'll we'll put them on the table for now. Our beautiful sirens of California. We'll have to wait because we have a beautiful pianist from California, Vince Graldi. This album. Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus, released in 1962. Jason, why, what made you bring this album to our attention? I have three answers to this question. Great. I was thinking you would ask. Of course. First one is that I have just been trying, I think maybe my like, guilt, not guilty pleasure, but like embarrassment around being a nerdy Wilco fan is evidence. I've been trying to just like listen to things other than whiny pop punk rock band people, <laughs> you know? Sure even though that's so much of who I am and it's uh, important, it's not like nothing. 
So Vince Graldi is kind of a, I see as a good stepping stone for people who listen to pop and rock and more like traditional commercial stuff into broader jazz with more colors and stuff. The second one is that I think he as an artist represents sort of a, an ideal or like a belief that I think three, the two of us, the, the three of us would agree with that like art made for young people does not need to be condescending or simplistic or lame. Mm. The Charlie Brown music, which is he would make later in his career, is some of the most beautiful, canonical, classic American music, I think, ever. Agreed. It was written for young people. <laughs> oh, the third one is that I'm learning to play one of his songs on the piano right now. Which one? Cast Your Fates. Which we'll Excellent. Talk about. Cast Excellent. Your Fate. Yeah, Cast Your Fate, which we're going to talk about, which was a big breakthrough hit for him. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that something that's really lovely about this record is that it's so listenable. It's really interesting and it's very impressionistic. It is not condescending to the listener in the ways that it's not dense in the ways that I think other jazz artists can somewhat be personally for, for my for my taste. And I think that that fits it right into the Kick the Jukebox canon as being actually a very direct record. There isn't actually a lot of superfluous material on this record as well, which makes it a real a real joy to listen to. And I make jokes on this podcast and in my personal life about how much I hate jazz. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's an in-joke I actually have with my friend Allison, who's an upcoming guest on this podcast. And we're big 60s music heads. We make jokes like, oh, you know, what are we going to do? Like, you know, go hang out with that guy in the black turtleneck and go listen to fucking mm -hmm. jazz. We're mm -hmm. both big fans of the Beach Boys. And we put men who are fans of Pet Sounds first sort of in the same category as jazz fans. Like, <laughs> it doesn't need to be the most obtuse, over-explaining music in order for it to be good. You know, and, and we, you know, we really appreciate directness on this podcast. And there is a lot of denser jazz that I do enjoy in my life. But this album is really interesting because it feels like a swing and a hit when it comes to Gualdi trying to write something somewhat accessible for people. And it was really exciting and people really took to it and, and enjoyed it. Totally. And, and that, I think that, that that's a really good point is the, you know, in doing research for this album and also this is, you know, other than the Charlie Brown music, this was the first time I was really delving into any of Vince Guaraldi's other music. And obviously we're going to talk about that. You can definitely hear some antecedents of what you hear later on Charlie Brown on this record, but then also just talking about the accessibility of it. I mean, it's definitely a jazz album, but in like researching Vince Guaraldi's own taste, he always put an emphasis on and his and loved in and of itself, like um, music with a strong melody. Yeah. And I heard other, you know, uh, well, one, I, I saw this interview with him and he was like, you know, he's like, I, I love melody. Uh, you know, he said, I can't think of a time when anyone's walking down the street just listening to chord changes. I watched you know, that interview like, too, and we are going to talk about that a lot because, boy, was that an interview from Mars. That yeah, that was weird as fuck. a yeah. weird promotional <laughs> film for this album, and we, yeah. are gonna, we are going to discuss it. <laughs> and I'll post it on the show notes on our webpage so anybody can go uh, watch it because it's 
really worth a watch. Yeah. Yeah. But go but, on, but Kyle. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That I thought was a really interesting perspective, especially for a jazz musician, especially at that time. And then also I heard another thing that he said that he, you know, he wanted people to like leave the club after he played like whistling his music, which is wow. like, I think a very unique or, or very particular perspective for like a jazz musician to have. And I think it's exactly what you said, Jason, like it's a good entry point for maybe fans of pop to get into jazz. It's really cool to hear that from the interview because I think you said this on the Pixies episode, Kyle, when you guys did, was it Doolittle you did? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like the both of you kind of had a shared sensibility where it like, placing a pop core within other genres like for them yeah. it would have been what like punk or alternative or whatever mm -hmm. it may be right yes that that is like you find yourselves preferring music like that and i totally sure. agree and it's mm -hmm. cool to hear that it's totally present in in this record and it's interesting to hear that that was something he actually sought out to do right yeah that's a really good point yeah and, and this album was categorized when it came out as a jazz record and of course you know with bossa nova influences but yeah. also as as an easy listening record as well and easy listening as a genre gets a bad rap but it's really just means that it's a album that you can have on that's easy to listen to that may enhance your life and you know, there's nothing wrong with that yeah, Rumors was classified as easy listening. You know what I mean? It's just... That's amazing, yeah. Yeah. I think that good easy listening brings people together. And yeah. I think that, that this album really does. For people who don't know a lot about Vince Guaraldi beyond... He's so iconic for his work on the Peanuts franchise that you've... Everybody's heard Linus and Lucy. And it's it's impossible not to sort of loop back to because that was so what what the hit was for him as as a as a musician and and what he'll be remembered for but he and came it's just up so good it's so, so it is good. good it's excellent yeah it's beautiful beautiful music hugely melodic icon it's iconic the the peanuts film a few years ago that came out used most of his music as a score and then every once in a while would break into pop music for certain scenes and it feels so anachronistic and weird and off-putting and was such a mistake and it's like yeah you can't do better than Vince when it comes mm -hmm. to scoring that that type of that sort of that that type of aesthetic that was it was really a, ma a match made in heaven so he he came up from the San Francisco jazz scene he was always a pianist he played in a few different uh, ensembles before striking out on his own, you know, founded the what was called the Vince Guaraldi Trio, which did have uh, rotating members. He was really the only member that stayed. Uh, in the, on this album, it's Colin Bailey on drums and Monty Budwig, Budwig on double bass. Just for those of you who are keeping track of where he was <laughs> at at this time, you real jazz heads out there for all you monty budwig freaks oh my god <laughs> all you monty we're gonna budwig get so freaks. many emails so many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah thank you for mentioning monty budwig on the podcast <laughs> yeah he was very influenced by bossa nova he went to go see the film black orpheus which is a version of, of the story of orpheus the the myth of orpheus set in brazil the film came out in 61 and won best foreign film at the Oscars that year. Uh, it has a pretty heavy 
bossa nova and percussive score. There are some melodic themes that Vince Guaraldi adapts, but it sort of became, this album sort of became a mishmash of adaptations of the themes from the film and then a lot of other stuff he was working on at the time. And this album's actually more well-known for the other stuff that isn't the score. Uh, and the film in itself, just slight side note, but it is interesting, was Barack Obama's mother's favorite movie, which is just, so it certainly had a stamp on the cultural experience of a lot of people growing up. And then Obama watched it and was somewhat offended by the portrayal of black people in the film. Felt that they were portrayed as overly childlike and simplistic in the film. So the movie itself isn't really watched a lot these days. And I would say that its biggest legacy is this album Hmm. in sort of an interesting roundabout way because it's not like the score for this record as well, I think, is highly discussed at this point. But this became such a launching point for Vince Guaraldi as an artist. Clearly, he was trying to tap into the zeitgeist at the time by doing an album based on Black Orpheus. And he also does a cover of Moon River, which we're going to get into as well, which was by far the most popular song in 1961-62 was just I didn't know that. massive massive hit say about the movie which i've never seen my in brief researching as well as, was that the it was like the the score was one of the big commercial peaks for bossa nova worldwide yes yes it was and so he's interpreting some of the like most sort of foundational you know i'm using the word canonical again but canonical bossa nova in terms of hits Yeah, absolutely. It it was a a very popular record for the time. And Bossa Nova at the time was taking the American music world by storm and was considered... Crazy to think that that was a big popular movement. That's so interesting. (laughs) Well, you know, that is something to remember is that a lot of musical forms since the beginning of recorded music have been co-opted for predominantly white audiences they didn't Mm -hmm. originate from white audiences and bossa Mm -hmm. nova is part of a long line but bossa nova really laid the template for easy listening jazz like this and then also the entire lounge music movement Mm. of the of the 60s as well esquivel who's one of my favorite guys who's a, a lounge music artist really he's mainly working with a with mainly bossa nova idioms in what he does, he just sort of brightens it up. And you could say that Vince Scraldi is doing the same sort of thing on this record as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Like repetitive kind of, dr- not droning, but like continuing, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say um, percussive, mm. uh, highly melodic, but slightly exotic in its melodicness. Yeah. Certainly it's not the kind of like great American vocal standard stuff that was a big hit in the early 60s sort of before rock really dug its claws in you know Mm. in terms of in terms of popular music it's not that it's uh you know there's definitely a a real latin influence to it which white suburban folks could get down with in the early 60s pretty much as long as it was being played by non-threatening white people Well, that's the thing, too, is that, yeah, a, a lot of what you said is right, is that Bossa Nova was, I think, what made it so appealing to Americans was the chord changes were really, really complicated and jazzy, but they often used a more of like a pox, pop song template. So you'd have like verses, choruses. They were not 
you know, expansive, like long free form jazz solos. You get bossa nova songs were usually three to four minutes long. And I think the other thing that made it accessible is that it often incorporated vocal melodies. So not only were there distinct, really catchy melodies, but they had singers. They almost all, like a lot of great bossa nova songs, famous bossa nova songs, you know, Girl from Ipanema being one of the most famous songs ever. I mean, these are songs that are actually very complicated in terms of their chord structure, but it's a catchy melody that has lyrics and is sung by, it's Mm. easy to sing. Yeah, yeah, easy That's to remarkable. sing, easy to mm-hmm. sing, complicated to complex to to create. Yeah. So, just before we listen to the first song we're going to cover, which was their big breakout hit Cast Your Fate, which you're learning on the piano, which is great, Jason. Mm-hmm. Proud of you as always. So, this was released by a record label called Fantasy Records, <laughs> who were it was run by a brother team of Saul and Max Weiss. And there's an interview with, I think it's Saul Weiss on the little promotional film, The Kyle, that you and I both watched, where he's playing with one of his collections of guns, wearing a giant furry Russian hat, <laughs> saying that he has an impeccable ear for... He for, has perfect pitch and he... Has, he- <laughs> perfect pitch, which means that he can pick out hits, apparently. Yeah, he, he always knows which one, within, within uh, he said, four to five measures, I can tell if it's going to be a hit. And it's funny that you <laughs> mentioned that, because um, uh, in doing research for this, uh, not only, he was like, oh, I knew the second I heard it, Cast Your Fate to the Wind was going to be a hit. Whereas, in reality, apparently, Vince Guaraldi literally had to stand up on his desk and stomp his feet to get him to put make it the B-side of... Uh, Samba uh, de Orpheus, mm-hmm. which was the A side. Yeah, which so was the big single. He's a complete. Apparently, Fantasy Records was just they are psychos. Um, also, yes. <laughs> just to mention, also they were also the um, another famous San Francisco band that I love, Creedence Clearwater Revival. They were the band who John Fogarty eventually had to sue them and take them to the Supreme Court to try to get his publishing back, which I think he never got. I think he lost that suit. Yeah, wow. and and Graldi had horrible legal oh, yeah. issues with these guys. Right. And They're ended up psychos. leaving the label. <laughs> they were big, big, big shysters. They right. were thieves. As we say yeah. in the Jewish community, they <laughs> yes, were, yes, they were yes. goniffs is what they really <laughs> were, these guys. And they they were big bullshitters. This interview, you know, he knew it was going to be a big hit. Yeah, that's such bullshit. bullshit and also, yeah. he apparently told Graldi to go see Black Orpheus as well oh. because he wanted someone Not to do true. something with Black Orpheus, but <laughs> yeah. he didn't know what he wanted someone to do with Black Orpheus. So he's telling all of his artists to go see Black Orpheus because <laughs> he wanted something to happen with the score to Black Orpheus. So yeah, they did finally successfully. Graldi's estate did successfully win some court cases against Fantasy Records in the early 2000s, which Mm. allowed his estate to be paid out several millions of dollars of withheld royalties. And in a statement, his son, I think it was his son, they said to his son, do you expect there to be more payouts? And his son's response was, we certainly hope so. (laughs) So like, clearly it was just like this long, prolonged, disgusting, very typical music industry story. But yeah. That being said, I think it's time to listen to a little bit of Cast Your Fate, and we will get into what makes it such a, such a wonderful song. Mm-hmm. 
this was the the piano jazz track that took the world by storm when it came out. It's beautiful. Lots of shades of peanuts in there. Definitely. 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 Yeah, Kyle, this this was yours, although if we one of us hadn't chosen this one, that would have been really ridiculous for this album. <laughs> what what drew you to this track? Yeah, it's so it's so beautiful. It's so fun. It's right around three minutes long and it's just really catchy and yeah you definitely hear the signature Vince Guaraldi style that you would later know on the peanut as we mentioned the first half of the album was all reinterpretations of music from the movie Black Orpheus and then on the second half he included songs like this and Almaville which we're going to talk about which were original compositions so Jason as you mentioned earlier this was a hit which is just insane to think especially in 1963 this single getting to it was went to number 22 on the billboard just the billboard hot 100 and it's a jazz instrumental which is just insane to think about and apparently you know as we mentioned fantasy records they so he had released two his first two albums on fantasy records back in the 50s they dropped him because they didn't really sell and then he he had this idea totally on his own he wanted to do um a reinterpretation of the black orpheus soundtrack and he uh went back to fantasy records being like please i have this idea let me do it and they wrote up another shiesty ass contract and he actually had to pay for his own studio time and then they tr they didn't want to release it as a single and essentially the way this be this was released in spring summer 62 and it didn't actually blow up until early 63 because there was a the classic story of uh sleeper hit there was just one rogue dj in sacramento that just loved this song and just refused to be told not to play it and he just kept playing it and people caught on and fell in love with this song but it was really a slow build for this song and not an obvious or immediate hit wow I mean, that I don't know if things like that really exist anymore, right? Can no. a DJ just champion something like that? No way. I mean, I, I think there are, you know, you know, shit can get blow up from other sources. Like if it gets like memeified or whatever, it blow or becomes mm -hmm, a TikTok mm -hmm. trend or something, you know, something that wasn't. But there's no nothing comparable like that where one DJ can just uh, like um, Vice just released a short documentary about the history of the shaggy song it wasn't me and that was the you know it just as recently as that but like that can't even happen anymore but apparently that was not a single off the album um just some random dj in hawaii just loved it and it started blowing wow. up and um, that's that's when people were consuming music that way that right. was a story that did happen somewhat regularly it happened in, it definitely happened in red, that, red wine is another example yeah yeah, and in that mm. DJs were tastemakers. Right. And yeah. that. And like advocates. Right. But it was a balance, too, because people would complain, too, that, you know, top 40 radio. Also, there was like payola. And then when it became less explicit, you know, they did have to just play whatever the fuck the labels said. But then also, you know, you had this. You know, part of the industry with radio was really shitty, but then also you had opportunities for people to be, you know, tastemakers like that. So it's it's a mixed bag, but like the fact that something like this could happen is a cool relic of another era. It's it's a shame that you know it's how 
because, mainly because of Spotify, who have really changed the way that we listen to music in ways that are both positive in the amount of accessibility we have and are hugely negative in the way that they treat their artists, which is something Jason, you and I were chatting about this week a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. They don't pay their artists properly, very much like Saul and Max Weiss of Fantasy Records. Yeah. Except I just have to say the, mm -hmm. the image of Giraldi stamping is good on the desk. <laughs> and wild. he seemed like such a mild-mannered guy otherwise. So. Well, yeah. he, 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 I think, you know, we can talk about this now. Personally, I think he was a rather contentious figure. Oh, yeah. He, you know, his wife left him and her cause of divorce was extreme cruelty oh, so really? he clearly had some some demons oh. in him yeah yeah he had some demons in him but uh he also i think maintained a pretty good relationship with his family until his death as well so mm. i think that it's a complicated story i don't know and also a lot of artists as we've been discussing on this podcast you don't necessarily want to be best friends with them but you can still acknowledge that they're that they're good, positive artists. He dropped mm. dead in between two sets that he was playing and he was back at his hotel and he he just, he was complaining about stomach pains and he died. And that was a heart attack. Suddenly. Yeah, yeah, had a heart attack and died just completely suddenly, which is really, you know, not the, not the worst way to go. He was a <laughs> bit of a smaller dude. This is just worth noting because once again, that weird promotional film yeah. that goes all over the place, mentions that he has stubby hands and it means that he needs to play the piano in any way that is comfortable to him because his hands aren't really built for the piano. So sometimes he'll use his thumb more than anyone else that's playing, you know, than other Whoa. jazz pianists. And if he can, you know, play, play a run, but use his like second or middle finger more, then he will do it in order to make the run sound complete. And I just, I feel like this is worth bringing up because he is a unique piano player. He definitely has a very, uh, I would say like perfunctory way of playing that makes it himself very accessible. And, you know, there's a brightness to his playing and that may have to do with, with his stubby hands or it may not have to do with his stubby hands, but that's really, <laughs> it's so strange. So yes. just worth saying. What a weird yeah. detail to include in the promotional film. Yeah. Whatever that was, it's like a weird black and white. So it weird. looks like it's a promotional film for this album. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. But thank you, Vince Guaraldi. I'm glad that you powered through having stubby hands Me and too. still became a piano player. <laughs> I kind of have stubby hands. We all kind of got stubby hands. <laughs> He's a hero to all of us. Yeah, a hero <laughs> to all of us with stubby hands. Yeah. Sure, you know. Um, you know what they say about stubby hands? Perfunctory piano player. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what they say. Okay, so <laughs> let's get into his I version. I thought you were going to say stubby dick, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's get into his beautiful rendition of Moon River. A song that should be near and dear to any fan of 20th century music. Let's listen to a little bit of it.
beautiful, beautiful version of this song. Love it. So Henry Mancini wrote this, who's a mainly a film composer and a songwriter. He wrote this for Audrey Hepburn to sing in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which came out in 1961. It was a hugely popular film based on a story by Truman Capote. <laughs> we, we don't need to get that much into it. It's not that important for discussing this, but it is an interesting song to really capture the zeitgeist so, so clearly in that early era for pop music in general, because it's filled with longing. It is a really sad, beautiful piece of music, but it is not bright and it is not optimistic. It's it's somewhat uh, wistful, I would say. It trades in a very frank version of nostalgia. I just think it's an interesting one for the early 60s and definitely shows that there was a complexity into what modern audiences at the time were looking for. Uh, it also, it won the 1961 Oscar for best original song. And then in 1962 was the song of the year, named song of the year by the Grammys. It won song of the year for the Grammys as well. So this song was on everybody's minds. And I, in my research, researching a song, this is kind of interesting in like multiple psychological studies about memory and memories when it comes to songs, this song is used more than almost any other song, which is hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, so it just, it really captured an element to the era. And then, you know, Graldi, he takes this song that is instantly recognizable, does a great job slowing down the verses making them very dreamlike and wistful. Yeah. And then using the song as a template for his own like impressionistic impulses. And it's great. It's this is a this is a really good cover of a song that's been covered hundreds of times. I have yeah. to say I wasn't even really familiar with its song history before. Um yeah. which is a, a theme for me throughout this record that he's you know interpreting the works of so many other people and I'm only coming to them through him. Kind of mm. like a Weird Al situation. Sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I agree, it's so longing. It's uh, I think of it as like, it should be the first dance between the couple at a wedding. Oh yeah, yeah this is, so I was asked to play this on the ukulele for a wedding, like mm. many, many years ago, and the chords were too hard, so I couldn't play it. <laughs> but it's been used for a lot of first dances. This is a very famous first dance song. Yeah, I, I just think it's interesting too, just the combination of this being like, I mean, you know, Moon River is a famous, I mean, it's a beautiful song, but it's just like so ingrained in the culture of that time. And like, you want to talk about easy listening, like, yeah, and and doing like a, a kind of a cooler jazz version of it, which is what Vince Guaraldi does, is kind of a combination of all these you know, impulses in pop music that were kind of having their last gasp be at the time because this is right pre-Beatles or like just coinciding with the Beatles, you know, right before really rock just started to dominate, you know, the Billboard charts. And like this kind of music, this is the kind of the last gasp of of an era where this kind of music would, was so uh, influential in like pop music, I think. It's definitely a segue from one era of music into another era of music. Mm. Yep. 
And it's great to hear it on wax like this. Yeah. <laughs> because it's it's really, it's just kind of all happening in your ears there. He's pushing a lot of a lot of musical, different types of musical language with his improvisational portions of the song, mm-hmm. but then gravitating back towards the theme and making it very accessible for the listeners. Yeah. This this should be mentioned. This was right before the Peanuts stuff hit. In fact, mm. it was the song Cast Your Fate that Lee Mendelson heard, who was the Peanuts producer. He was producing a documentary about the Peanuts and decided to start using Vince Guaraldi for scoring Peanuts projects. So, that you know, he heard it and he said, this is the sound that we want for Peanuts. His yeah. ability to get a little more improvisational on records sort of was lessened and lessened by the success of the Peanuts music. Although mm-hmm. the, the early Peanuts scores have a lot of improvisation in them, but then when he was releasing stuff on his own that was solo, you know, non-Peanuts material, he wasn't really allowed to experiment that much anymore. And this is a nice middle ground because it's nice to hear such a pop-oriented track and then really allow him to be the jazz pianist that he was for his entire career. In terms of other interpretations he does, he has an Eleanor Rigby that is really arresting. It's really beautiful. Yes. Uh, It like references the, you know, main refrain enough and then just uses it as a jumping off point for really interesting explorations. And that was a really successful moment for him as well. People really enjoyed that in his sets as well. Hmm. Yeah, and it shows that he was down with new stuff that was happening. You totally. know, he wasn't mad at the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, wow. Eleanor Rigby was a new thing then. He was just that's right between the new things. That's right. Yeah. He was playing. He was playing Eleanor Rigby. You know, pretty much right when it came out, but a jazz version of it. And <laughs> that's so much the story of the Beatles is that the Beatles really their albums would come fresh off the presses, and there would be a flock of interesting interpretations of Beatles songs immediately because people were so excited about the Beatles. You know, that's the old story of Jimi Hendrix learned like all of the first side of Sgt. Pepper's the day it came out and then went and played it live that night. And oh my then, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a thing he did. I don't know if it was wow. the entire first side, but it's like at least the first few songs. Yeah. So a bit of a tangent there, but it's a thing that he did because people were so excited about the Beatles at the time. Uh, yeah, he also has a really good, Graldi has a really good cover of the song Never Neverland from the musical Peter Pan that I think just brings out really everything that makes that song and that score a really beautiful, once again, sort of wistful longing and smart score for for pieces that were really mainly for children, you know? Uh, yeah. is worth tracking down as well. It's one of my favorite things that he's done that isn't a Peanuts thing. So, I think that's so important. And there's just so much media and art made for young people that just assumes that they are stupid. And Yeah, but you know, that's the media and art that doesn't last. It yeah. really is. It's the stuff that kids don't care about in a few years. And then mm-hmm. there's longstanding stuff that is much beloved that kids get a big kick out of no matter when it was made. Like there are still kids that are watching the peanut specials oh, and yeah. like them. There's a reason why they're shown every year, you know, whereas there's a lot of other TV specials from the time that I've watched because I'm into culture from that time. That's just dreadful. You mm-hmm. know, I'm a big fan of the Archies as we know from this podcast. And I 
would never recommend the Archie's cartoon to anybody in any capacity. <laughs> it's literally, I would rather tear out my eyes than watch the Archie, the Archie's cartoon. It's a nightmare, you know, mm. and that's from around the same time. And it's because it's so insanely condescending to its mm-hmm. audience. So it's like the stuff that, that has retained its, its value is the stuff that doesn't, that doesn't treat children as lessers. Yeah. I think yeah. Geraldi points us in a really good direction there. Like he's a, he can be a guiding light for people who, I mean, especially composing jazz music for kids. Like right. that in and of itself is pretty daring. Yeah. 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 And, and similar to a lot of people knew that, that a lot of people did know that kids could understand jazz and get mm-hmm. jazz. A lot of the stuff that's Graldi wrote for kids reminds me a lot of the scores mm. for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as well. Mm, right. Just phenomenal, incredible stuff. Yeah. Yeah, which is good work. Like it's good work musically and it's worth it's worth mentioning, you know. And and Fred Rogers is another guy who's just a killer good songwriter. Just yeah. he was a great fucking songwriter, that guy. And yeah. composed on piano. Uh so yeah, there you go. You know, it's mm. like anyway, <laughs> let's talk about Almaville. Let's get it back to Vince here. Oh yeah, yeah. is definitely the one that i'd say is the most like bossa nova inspired yeah and most latin uh latin jazz um and i think it's even more than cast your fate to the wind is the most peanutsy too yeah 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 there's this like nice clear clear melody line for sure yeah, yeah that's really bright and childlike so jason this one why do you want to talk about it let's talk about it I, I saw the Peanuts shades in it, too. The kind of gallopy. You were using the word percussive a lot, mm-hmm. really. That's totally right. I This was the first song of his, other than Cast Your Fates, which, of course, is just kind of immediate and infectious. This was the first one where I was like, oh, wow, I really like this guy. And it was a piece I used to score a um, mime piece that I built oh, at cool. my theater school last year. Oh, sweet. And I mean, I'm sure you guys can imagine it's just like so brightly illuminates like physical theater work, especially yeah. nonverbal work. Mm. And it has such an emotional ennui. <laughs> I mean, it's called Almaville. I see it as a little encapsulated cartoon town, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like a it's such a imagery rich song. Wow. That's yeah. 
<laughs> I could totally see something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. It was very clowny in addition to being mime, you know, just kind of bumbly, <laughs> kind of thing. There is a, there's a, there's a great, I would say like visual potential in a lot of the way he writes, you know, yeah. he really his his writing is clear enough that it really sparks the imagination in a specific way. And, and I guess I can say also, there's just something about, I mean, this kind of, digs down into like the under the essence of like underground of what I like in music of just like it just feels good this song really feels nice and it's I mean easy listening might be reductive in that way it like fires on neurons that work right (laughs) it's the thing we're talking about too about there being a pop center it just feels really good (laughs) yep this is one you can definitely hum when you're walking down the street after you've seen him play it in a club. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I, you know, just learning more about him, apparently when he first started playing, like when he was in high school, he'd play like a lot of like boogie-woogie piano. Uh, that was like his roots. So like people might, you know, like a Fats Domino type. So it's like really heavily syncopated and that really syncopated like bass. The bass is uh, really takes the lead and is so integrally incorporated into the melody and you can kind of hear that influence on this song which makes it really fun like it doesn't it's not fast enough to really be dancey but like you can tell it has like a fun rhythmic propulsive quality and then also he played with uh probably before vince guaraldi trio he played mostly with cal jader in the 50s and he is like one of the pioneers of Pretty much he's like the white guy who made Latin jazz famous in the U.S. But I mean, he's really, really good, too. But, you know, he was um, he like really popularized like Latin jazz. And so he has a he played Vince Guaraldi was like the piano player for Cal Chater, like during a lot of the 50s. Wow, that's so interesting. I feel like you can really trace Guaraldi's sensibilities. They kind of clonk all together like puzzle pieces. Yeah, and you can really hear all of it so distinctly. Like, you hear the Latin influence, you hear, like, the blues equality, especially on this song, um, and then just, like, the traditional, like, smooth, what you wouldn't call it smooth jazz, but, like, cool jazz, bebop kind of thing. Um, and it, it's all right there. The boogie-woogie as well, too, yeah. on, this, on this track as well. All Definitely. genres of music that if you're playing them on the piano, it really benefits to have stubby fingers. <laughs> yeah you I mean he yeah he he mastered the stubby finger genres um <laughs> and and synthesized all of it <laughs> yeah so this song also was re-recorded in 1969 when he was with warner brothers records and is the title track of a release from 69 called Almaville, obviously, that was an attempt to re-commercialize him because his non-Peanuts material for Warners hadn't sold very well. So he was working with a producer and this song, I think was sort of supposed to be a message for the consumer that it would be something accessible that they would enjoy because they had enjoyed this song on this previous record on Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus. So that's why I think it was used as the title track. And And the other version of it is not that much different from this one. It's a little peppier. It's, it's played at a little bit of like a faster, faster pace. And the, the, of course the improvisational elements are different, but it's not, it's not that different of a, it's not that different of a track. 
And that is the album that has his version of Eleanor Rigby on it as well. So, yeah. I think at that point, he had formed a pretty lasting partnership with a guitarist as well, who was uh, Brazilian. Yeah, in the 60s, he played a ton with Bola Sete was his name. That's yeah, true. and yep. those albums are great. I mean, I will admit, I like love Brazilian music and bossa nova music, and it's just, re- well, I mean, he, you know, if you ever saw, what's that Wes Anderson movie? Um, Which one? What do they use it in? The, with the bossa nova singer with the oh Brazilian life aquatic life aquatic yeah, yeah oh he, goodness yeah i think that was i think he might have been the inspiration for that but i'm not sure but he you know yeah it was it was uh vince guaraldi and bolasete and that was like throughout the 60s those are really cool mm-hmm. albums that's awesome Sete takes a cool solo on the second version of almaville mm, nice nice awesome well this has been a very cool conversation about this guy yeah. And clearly this is music that makes you want to feel good. This is warm and comforting music as well, which is really important right now. Mm. Say just sort of some closing thoughts here. You know, why why do you think this makes us feel so good right now? I think I can say something and it might have to do with what Kyle was talking about about bossa nova that the chord changes, the composition, the construction are all very intentional and and sophisticated and then it's very still singable. I was strangely enough, I was reading a piece about like why it becomes harder to find new music as you get older, mm-hmm. that you want to keep going back to things you recognize. It's because the brain calcifies. <laughs> exactly that. Well, not about calcifies, but like it's, it's, it, they, they talked in the article about the activity in the brain and like what brings pleasure and stuff. And it's recalling, but his music kind of sits you right in between, right? Mm. Giraldi. Mm-hmm. Everything feels like, oh, even if you haven't heard it before, you've heard it before. Mm. And yet the notes are con- contextualized or ordered in a way that is like, oh, but I've never heard it this way. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. don't need to be, it's not laborious, but you still are consuming something new, but you're, you know, chilling on the couch and you're comfy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's It's something new without the confrontational aspects of new music that can happen. Yeah, which jazz time. can be that way for a lot of unaccustomed ears, mine included. Yes, it's it's why I, I hate jazz as a rule. Just hate <laughs> it. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. This has been another wonderful episode of Kick the Jukebox. Kyle, any any parting thoughts? Um, I just want to thank uh, Jason for bringing this album to my attention. This was a, a really fun to listen to, and I'm definitely I've been listening to this while I like read, and um, yeah, I think too. it's uh, uh, it's a this will be now in my in my reading rotation playlist. <laughs> yeah, with with all your other jazz that you listen to when you yeah, read. I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I gotta get a reading rotation. That sounds like a good thing to have. Oh yeah, yeah a reading Great. rotation. Reading rotations are important right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I finally got back into reading like in the last two weeks. And let me tell you, it's great to be reading again after years <laughs> and years of social media ruining my attention span. <laughs> mm, I'm with you on that one. Yep. yep. Well, this has been another episode of Kick the Jukebox. You can, you know, like and review us on iTunes. You can follow us on social media, do all that kind of stuff. This is our 41st episode. Just wow. want to mention that. So we're coming up on 50. Yeah, we're coming up on 50 now. So, you know, we mainly cover 20th century music, but if you liked our discussion about Vince Guaraldi, we have discussions about 
some of the most important rock artists, hip hop artists, punk artists from the last 50 years to 60 years. And uh, please explore our back catalog. You can get in touch with us, chat with us about what sort of albums you would like us to cover. Jason, if I thanks. can say as a fan, yes. I really anyone who's listening really should dig in. It, I, I've become such a more conscientious listener, and even when I sit down to play music, I, I just learn a lot from you guys. And I think you're such consummate music analysts. I think it's really cool what you do. Oh God, <laughs> uh, we're, we we yeah. can't cry because we're we're tough. I mean, there, we're what tough else, boys. What, how, what more could I want to hear in life? I mean, I did it. Mission accomplished. Done. I know, seriously. <laughs> yeah, if my epitaph is he had great taste oh. in music, I'm done, you know? Done. 100% earned. Yeah. yeah. Done. Thank you, Jason. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for joining us again. It's been great to have you back on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, everybody, this has been another wonderful episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. And we will see you around like a record. Talking about music all the time.